So it's great to be with you today. I do want to uh, mention Grace Sheets. We went Wednesday to see her and she wasn't doing well. We went Saturday to see her and she is doing worse. But she has said to me several times, make sure you tell those people how much I love them. She greatly has appreciated being among you at fellowship. And it does look like she is shortly going to be introduced to Jesus Christ personally. She has C. difficile and a few other things and is going downhill. So pray for Grace. Pray for her sister. As far as we know, her only, her only relative is a sister living out in Nevada. So pray for God's grace upon grace. <clears throat> we are in today, Matthew chapter 21, verse 23 to 32. I looked in the bulletin to see what I was speaking on, but it doesn't say anything. <clears throat> didn't understand why the title wasn't in the bulletin. Well, I did understand. I actually didn't get it in. And so they didn't put it in. The reason I didn't get it in was because I didn't have a title. But we're in this marvelous section of Matthew 21. I had an interesting experience Thursday of this week. I was reading the Martinsburg newspaper and they announced that Matt Jarlstrom was fined $500 by the Oregon State Board of Examiners for Engineering Land Surveying. Find $500. For what? Well, he wrote to City Hall about how to fix a traffic light problem in his hometown of Beaverton, Oregon. He was trying to help them improve their traffic timing intervals. And he had worked on a mathematical formula used as a basis for programming traffic light signals. But in his paper to the governing authorities, he said that he was an engineer. He actually has a degree, a bachelor's degree in electronic engineering and works on test equipment as an engineer. But he has not been officially licensed by the Oregon State Board of Examiners for Engineering. And he was fined $500. You can't claim to be an engineer in Oregon unless you're licensed. Last year, the Oregon Board opened an investigation into Allen Alley the Republican candidate for governor, because in a political ad, he stated he was an engineer. Although Mr. Alley has a mechanical engineering degree from Purdue, worked as an engineer for Ford and for Boeing, the board said he was not registered in Oregon as a professional engineer and could not say he was an engineer. What's going on in Oregon? <laughs> I read that and I thought, boy, that sounds like Matthew 21. In our section today, the leaders of the nation come after Jesus because he's not registered with the state board as a professional temple cleaner outer. <laughs> he lacked authority to do what he did. Only they weren't going to fine him 500 denarii. They wanted the death penalty. 
This section has got to be one of the most masterful interactions between right and wrong. When the lady sang today, your great name, I think this passage is a, an, an, an event that explains the greatness of the name of Jesus Christ. Just how he handled it and what he did. Remember the context. The king of Israel has just fulfilled scriptures that foretold his triumphal entry into his capital, Jerusalem. The shouting now has ceased. The crowds have disappeared. The king, this is probably Tuesday, two days after the triumphal entry, now enters the headquarters of his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees who rule and reign from the temple. He enters their castle as their king to take over. They have authorized the turning of the holy place into a flea market. He, with a blitzkrieg of righteous indignation, physically knocks over the tables, upsets the chairs of the pigeon sellers, and literally purges the den of robbers from the place. He's determined to turn the temple into the house of prayer it was originally designed to be. But the leadership took his closing down of their temple as an intentional attack on them. What's happened by the time we get to chapter 21, verse 33, is that the battle between the king of the Jews and the other kings, the scribes and the Pharisees, has started. They come to him with the intention of shutting down his takeover. They're going to kill him if they can figure out how to do it. But they can't do it with guns. They can't do it with force because of the people, because of the constraints of the situation. So it becomes a verbal interchange played out in public in front of this nation that the leaders have misled and abused for so many years. The leaders have their big qualifying question that should do the trick. But the reaction of Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in public before the people. And Jesus, after he has clearly answered them, after he has pronounced condemnation on their attitude and their actions, still, after that, offers them hope and grace. It's an amazing interchange. I want to organize these ten verses into twos. Two questions, two sons, two times. The first question came from the leadership, and it was designed to show that Jesus was unqualified. Here's verse 30, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the temple came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The, the leadership is publicly questioning Jesus' right to do what he's doing. The two parts of the question really are only one question. They're really saying, who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to do these things? 
These things includes cleansing the temple. It includes the children pronouncing the psalm Hosanna to the son of David. It includes healing the blind and the lame and those who came. It includes his teaching. It includes his preaching, which was not authorized by them. Who gave you the right to do this? Is what they're asking. I'm guessing that they figured that he would answer in one of two ways. A, you're right. I don't have the papers. And they could get him out of there. B, I got the right from God, or I am God, and they could charge him with blasphemy and have him arrested. So this is the big question. This is the question that's going to turn the turn the tables on Jesus Christ. You need to remember that the question is legitimate. It is a legitimate question. These are the official leaders of the nation of Israel. The chief priests, the elders, Mark and Luke say the scribes. The temple was their headquarters. This was there that where they sat on the seat of Moses. They had authorized the temple becoming a flea market because they were more interested in commercial gain than a house of prayer. You know, there wasn't any money in prayer. Let's make something out of this. But as the authorities, they were responsible to verify his credentials. After all, he had rearranged everything and condemned all they had set up by calling it a den of thieves. At the same time, he had not requested permission. He did not have a license. So their question implies they didn't give him this authority. Where'd you get it? Can you picture this event? <clears throat> Can you visualize the standoff and what's going on? Ever been to the flea market down here on 340? Ever done your shopping there? Imagine what it would be like down there on the flea market to be doing your regular Wednesday shopping and somebody comes through and just turns the tables over, knocks the stuff all over the place, turns over the chairs, you know, and you got money flying, you got stuff, almost said junk, you got stuff flying, you know, you got people screaming. Mark gives the, Mark makes the statement that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. In other words, he gave directions as to what was going on in this place. He took this place over. And the owner of 340 Flea Market comes and says, why are you doing this? Who said you could do this? That's what's going on here. We need to realize how big this is. You know, my guess is that the, that the flea market on 340 may be 150 feet long and 150 feet wide. What was this one like? Here's a picture of the temple and the two open areas, the one at the top, which you can see at the top is called the Court of the Gentiles. It's also down at the bottom, the Court of the Gentiles. That is where the flea market was, okay? And as you look at it from the top, this this... Temple Mount is a huge place. Its, its width is probably larger than 800 feet. Its length is probably more than 1,300 feet. 
So the place, the area that Jesus Christ takes over is probably a huge area. There are probably a huge number of people there. And he is controlling this, directing this, probably shouting out directions as to who can do what and so on. So their question is legitimate. Where did you get this authority? The problem is, Jesus had already answered that question. How do you show authority? What did they want out of Jesus? They want a piece of paper signed by a rabbi, stamp on it that said, approved. How do you show where your authority comes when you're not in the ring of rabbis, when you're outside the ring? The Old Testament said you can identify the authority of Messiah in at least two ways. A, by what he says, B, by what he does. Did they hear what he said? Did they know what he did? Well, one of their own men came to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What's that about? Nicodemus was a member of the leadership team. And he knew that Christ's miracles qualified him as from God. As I was going through this, I came to the realization that Jesus Christ at least eight times in one way or another, answered this question. Here's one of the ways he answered it. This is Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, Jesus is teaching in a house that's apparently too small. It's loaded with people, and there are men that come with a paralytic on a bed, and they can't get in, so they go up on the roof, they pull off some of the tiles, and they let them down through the roof. Jesus sees this this paralytic descending and says to the man, your sins are forgiven. It so happens that there's a group of leaders there who say to themselves, how can this guy say this? No one can forgive sins except God. Jesus says, that's a correct statement. Let me help you think it through. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk? The answer is that both are impossible. Neither one of them can be done apart from God's power. So verse 10 is the crucial verse. Jesus says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. What's the issue? The issue is authority. Authority to forgive sins. 
the leadership had it correct. A person, this, you know, a man can't forgive sins. They're ready to charge him with blasphemy. And Jesus says, let me show you who I am. Let me introduce myself. And demonstrates to them that he has authority on earth to forgive sins because he is God. What the leaders were asking about in the temple context had become the hallmark of Jesus' authority, of Jesus' ministry. He was showing his authority time and time again. So the fact that they were still asking the question suggests that they had rejected all his answers. Which meant that the question really was hypocritical. They didn't care about knowing the source of his authority. They had plenty of opportunities to find the answer to the question. The evidence screamed out through what he did and what he said. But they were angry. They were frustrated over the fact that they couldn't control him. They couldn't get to him. He operated on a different level, you know. He was up here at drone level. And they couldn't get control of what he was doing or what he was saying. Jesus knew this. How do you deal with hypocrites? How do you deal with people who have a mask on that says they are happy, that looks like they are happy, when behind the mask they are not happy? How do you deal with people where you answer them, they reject the answer, and they ask the same question again? I'm sure you've asked that question. You know, how do you deal with hypocrites? You probably met a few. What do you do? Especially when, they're, when they hold the microphone, you know, when they're in charge. How do you deal with hypocrites? Here's what Jesus did. He made their hypocrisy public. So everybody there, and there was probably a large crowd in that Gentile court. Everybody there could see their hypocrisy. So Jesus' question shows that the leaders are hypocrites. Jesus' question shows that the leaders are hypocrites. So let me read, starting in verse 24, and I don't have that passage, so you'll have to open your Bibles. You brought your Bible, didn't you? Good. If you open your, pa- your Bible to chapter 21, here's verse 24 and following. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer then I also, I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. (laughs) That is such a funny answer. 
And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what he's asking is, do you accept that John's authority is from heaven? Is John from heaven or is John from man? The baptism of John, meaning the ministry of John. Is it from heaven or is it from man? See, what Jesus is asking is, he's saying to them, you know, the issue really isn't my authority. The issue really isn't, why am I doing what I'm doing? The issue is, what authority do you take? Who is your authority? Ravi Zacharias was speaking, as he many times does, to a large audience that was sort of against him. And he gets a question from a young man who is obviously antagonistic. And the young man says to Ravi, define God. Define God. And Ravi says, okay, I'll do that if you first answer this question. Define the person you're so strongly against. What a great answer. See, what Ravi's saying is, let's first get a picture of the authority that you hate so strongly. It's not necessarily an issue of what God is like. Because you may have the wrong God. And maybe the problem is your caricature of God that you're fighting against. I think that's similar to what's happening here. Jesus is not evading the question. He's not turning it into a rabbit trail. He's answering the question. What he's saying is, my authority is from the same location as John the Baptist's authority. So let's talk about him. Is he from heaven? Or is he from man? Did they know the source of John's authority? Maybe John was just a mystery man who came out of the hot desert in Judea and began baptizing to cool people off, as you will need today. Or tomorrow. Maybe no one really knew where John came from or what he did. No, but these leaders had sent a special delegation down to John the Baptist early on in his ministry to find out who he was. Do you remember that interaction? This is John chapter 1. A group comes down, they meet John the Baptist as he's baptizing in the River Jordan, and they say, who are you? He said, I'm not Messiah. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? Notice verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. These are delegates from the leadership, from this very temple where Jesus is, who have sent this delegation down to find out who John was. Verse 23, and he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What was happening there? Well, you had a delegation of leaders who were there, who had taken a day's journey coming from Jerusalem to Jericho to the Jordan River, to cross the Jordan River, to go talk to John, probably took them a whole day just to get there. And they say, who are you? What are they asking? Are they asking for his name? No, it's not his name. What they're asking is, where are you in the prophetic chronology of people who are supposed to come? Are you Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? He's supposed to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Are you Elijah? No. Are you that prophet, probably the one spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, who's going to be like Moses? Are you him? No. Well, who are you? I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 says, before Messiah arrives, a voice will appear. And the voice will demand that people get ready and that preparation be made for Messiah. I am the voice. Did they know who John was? How clear could it be? There's absolutely no question they knew who John was. There's no question they knew where he came from. There's no question that they didn't know who, what he was doing. So what did they do? You will notice in Luke chapter 7, they rejected him completely. Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Luke 7, 30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. See, the reason John was baptizing was because he was coming to a nation that had become very calloused, a nation that had come, become very rebellious. And he is saying, there is an axe that is laid at the tree, getting ready to chop the tree down, and you need to repent right now and get ready for Messiah because he's at the door. John introduced Messiah. Countless numbers of people responded, got baptized, confessed their sin, got their lives straightened out, waiting for Messiah. The leadership? Nah. We don't want that stuff. So Jesus' question demonstrates that the leaders are imposters. They're unqualified to lead this nation. How did he do this? He asked this simple question, and he got, a, he got an answer that wasn't an answer. So what did he show? Well, he showed, number one, that they're hypocrites. You can see their hypocrisy when you, when you listen to their discussion. Jesus said, John the Baptist, is his ministry from heaven or from man? Do they say, oh, let's see, is it from heaven? Let's vote here. How many votes do we have for heaven? How many votes do we have against? 
No, they're talking about how to manipulate the situation. They say, well, if we say this, if we say this, bunch of hypocrites. That's why John originally had called them a bunch of snakes. They're now demonstrating their viperness. Secondly, what he does is he shows their incompetence to rule. You can't have rulers who live in ignorance, who refuse to take a stand for someone as crucial as John the Baptist. Didn't John the Baptist bring revival? He did. Wasn't that revival from God? If not, they should have stepped in and stopped it. If it was from God, they should have been enthusiastic over his ministry. John was obviously from God, turning their nation to repentance. Weren't they excited over what John had done for their people? No. Thirdly, Jesus publicly embarrasses them. You mean you can't tell if he's from God? And you are the acknowledged leaders of this country? You pretend to have all wisdom and knowledge. I mean, this is not a question that can be answered with a non-answer. It's a yes or no question. You're the spiritual leaders of Israel. God has tasked you with leading this people to spiritual health. You're required by your position in the nation to give an answer. And there are only two doors. Can you imagine what this answer does for the people? Who have looked up to these guys for years as righteous as all-knowing, I would imagine a video of this interview would have gone viral in Israel. Look at what the Pharisees said. Can you imagine such a stupid answer? My 10-year-old could answer that question. So this simple question forces these wolves in sheep's clothing to admit who they really are, what they actually believe, and what they're really doing. They've got their own self-admiration society going at the expense of truth, at the expense of their people. Have you ever thought about who your authority is? Who is, what is the authority in your life? Take, for example, Pastor Van's message two Sundays ago. Do you remember two Sundays ago? I assume you were all here. He spoke on prayer. And he said words to the effect that, you know, we need to get serious about prayer. Has that changed you in the last two weeks? Did you see that message as God saying to you, you need to do something about prayer? Or did you see that message as advice from a local pastor? See, the real issue in your life and my life is, where is the authority? Most people, the authority comes from themselves. I'll do what I want to do. A Christian says their authority is God. God works through his word. We say, this is our authority. But is this our authority? 
Do we take these words as God speaking to us? That's the issue that every one of us faces. Coming to understand that I am responsible to God's word, to listen, to believe it, to obey it. So here are men who reacted to the authority of Christ because they had rejected the authority of John the Baptist, because they had rejected the authority of Moses, because they had rejected the authority of God's word. So Jesus responds to their answer by saying, neither will I tell you the source of my authority. And then he says this, but what do you think? What do you think? Interesting question. And he introduces three parables, not just the one we're going to talk about in a minute or two, but three parables the next two weeks. And these three parables bring out the motivation and the attitude and the tragedy of these leaders in public. He's going to publicly tell people what they're thinking. Let's talk about God's two sons. Let's talk about the vineyard that God has set up. Let's talk about the wedding feast that you're going to miss. Verse 45 says they understood he was talking to them. So let's talk about the two sons. Here's the parable. The two son parable introduces two kinds of sinners. Verse 28. What do you think? I think I've got it up here. Yeah. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same, and said the same, but he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. What this parable does is it simplifies the authority question. I think Jesus is saying, okay, maybe the John the Baptist question was too complex for you guys. Let's reduce the complexity. Let's put this on the level of a 10-year-old, okay? Let's talk about obedience since you're worried about mine. Let's talk about two sons, the bad one and the good one. The bad one appears in verses 28 and 29. He's commanded to go to work in the field. He says, no. That wasn't just a negative answer. That was a rude negative answer. It made no attempt to cover his bad attitude. He was a picture of a self-centered, careless, determined sinner who couldn't care less about anyone else's authority, especially his parents, especially his father. Ever met anybody like that? Any of you parents ever met anybody like that? <laughs> ever been anybody like that? You know? Verse 30 introduces us to the other, the good sinner. 
The father says, go into my field. This one says, of course. I love you, daddy. I'll do everything you say. The problem is he was only posing. He was a hypocrite. He wasn't any more interested in obedience than the other son was. But he spoke well. He was respectful. He was kind. He was generous to his father. He probably talked about obedience. He probably preached obedience. He probably condemned his brother who didn't obey. You remember how these guys could spot the speck in the other guy's eye, you know, and try to take the speck out of his other the other guy's eye? That's what he's doing. He probably took the speck out of his brother's eye way, had a telephone pole in his own eye of disobedience. But he never obeyed. With these two sons, Jesus is introducing us to the two great divisions of humanity. Every one of us probably fits one of these categories. Either saying no to God and going our way, or like a Pharisee, saying yes, being good and nice as we disobey. Can you relate to one of these categories? Jesus talked about these two categories several times. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? The son who got his dad's inheritance and took it and squandered it. And then he comes back. He repents and comes back. And his father has a celebration and finds out there's another son. He's out in the field. He's the older son. He's never disobeyed. At least he says he hasn't. But he won't come into the celebration. The father goes out and talks to him. And he talks ugly about his brother and he talks ugly to his father his father hasn't given him the fatted calf the way he's given this sinner son so what is that that's the two categories you got the bad category you got the good category the striking thing is neither one is interested in obedience You either blatantly turn away or you fake it. The bad one, unrighteous. The good one, self-righteous. So what Jesus does then is he has two time indicators here that introduce us to how great the sin is of the leaders. Two time indicators. The time indicators are in the word afterward. Afterward appears twice in this passage. Verse 29 introduces us to the first afterward. With the first son, he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changes his mind and went. There comes a marked time in every person's life where God visits them with truth. In this case, it was John the Baptist coming into the life of this bad guy, actually the good guy too, preaching repentance. The bad guy repents, confesses his sin, and goes to work in the vineyard. The second one, the seemingly good guy, Rejects. 
Jesus then asked the very simple question, which of the two did the will of the Father? Two choices, door number one, door number two, and for some surprising reason, they had the right answer. The first, they say. Now, it wasn't that the first son was perfect in his obedience. He wasn't a model son. But what Jesus is saying is that in comparison with the good guy who didn't obey, the bad guy did the will of the Father. And then we have the application. The application says, here's where Jesus says, beginning in verse 31. Truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Can you imagine Jesus in front of this huge crowd that's gathered pronouncing their Jewish spiritual leaders as in worse shape than prostitutes? I'm sure that was a shock to the public. The statement implies two things. It implies that the scribes and the Pharisees are not entering the kingdom of heaven. And if you are using them as your model, chances are good you'll go down the broad road to hell. But it also implies that the door is not yet closed on these leaders. Jesus says the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Implying the leaders could follow. But to get in, they need to humble themselves, like the the example of the sinners they looked down on. The door was not closed. They were not automatically out. Several of these leaders actually do come to Christ. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. But entrance demanded repentance, which demanded humility. Do you remember the prayer of the tax collector? This is Luke chapter 18. Jesus says two men go up to pray. The Pharisee prays and says, Lord, I am so grateful I'm not like others. I praise your name that I'm not like this tax collector. I I fast twice a week. I tithe of everything I have. The tax collector wouldn't even look up. He beats on his breast and he says, Lord, be merciful to me. The sinner. The sinner. Not a sinner. Not I sin. But the sinner. Meaning the model of sin. The model of the worst. Jesus said that man who prayed seven words went home justified. You know, the Pharisee could have prayed that prayer had he understood the fact that he was the sinner and that underneath his shell of righteousness, 
was this cesspool full of his nose to God. That's the issue. The issue is coming to understand who you really are, where you really are. There's a second afterward. Verse 32, John came in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. The second son refused two invitations. John came in the way of righteousness, which should have excited, him, excited them or convicted them. How did they respond to John? Well, A, they didn't believe him. B, they misrepresented him. C, they should have been excited about his righteousness. D, when the first son repented, they saw that, but it had no impact on them. Do you see the two afterwards here? Verse 29, verse 32. Jesus is saying, you had opportunity one when John the Baptist came. You had opportunity two when you saw the effect of John's ministry on those skid row prostitutes whose lives are transformed. God was speaking to you twice. You ever been there? You heard the gospel message, you understood the issue, you knew the command was to believe on Jesus Christ and receive him. You've seen the change that he brought, has brought in other people's lives who have come to him. Perhaps the new joy in the life of your daughter. Or the new hope in the life of your son, or your wife, or your husband, or neighbor. And you're unmoved. God has personally visited you at least twice, calling you to repentance. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's pointing out the horror of the Pharisees' sin. While at the same time encouraging them that the door is still open if they will humble themselves. An amazing heart of love and mercy. But the doors only open if they follow the example of the first son, the bad guys. And he's saying to these men, you need to enter that door because in three days, you're going to make a move that you'll regret for eternity. In three days, Jesus is on the cross. Romans 10.13 promises salvation to all who call upon the name of the Lord. The word call is the word cry. Cry out to Jesus Christ as the sinner, the bad one, in spite of all the good stuff you've done. You only come to Jesus Christ for salvation as a disobedient sinner. Is that where you are? 
Have you rejected Christ's offer twice or three times or more? You can come to Christ today. You can come to Christ right where you sit. You can come to Christ by praying like the tax collector prayed. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice how this story calls for action. Jesus wants the Pharisees to change their minds, to humble themselves, to believe him and receive him. There's no neutral ground. Where do you get your authority, they say? His answer, the same place as John the Baptist. And you've not only rejected his authority, you're about to reject mine and make a major mistake. So Jesus is not only answering their question, but he is bringing them to a crossroad. He's bringing them to a fork in the road where they must make a personal decision. Do you see how amazing the interaction is? The young lady saying, your great name. He can point, he can answer their question, he can condemn them, and at the same time offer them hope through his name. So the good guys, the Pharisees, are worse off than the bad guys, the tax collectors and prostitutes, because even though they had a form of godliness, they were faking it. They had trouble with John the Baptist's ministry, because they had trouble with Moses' ministry, because they had trouble with God's word. May you not follow them. So two questions, two sons, two times. Stay tuned for the next episode. Parable number two, where Jesus reveals that the Pharisees do know who he is. They do know why he is here. And he reveals that he knows what they plan to do about the situation. And he gets them to admit what he's going to do. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the privilege of just listening to our Savior and Lord as he presents himself and deals with rebellious, hypocritical people like us. I pray if there's anyone here today who has never trusted Christ as Savior that you would speak to them that they today might humble themselves, might call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would encourage us with the realization that you are with us, that you are directing our lives, that we can walk with you. I pray for grace sheets today. Would you encourage, strengthen her in these last days? May her mind be focused on you. May she experience your presence, your encouragement. Thank you for all that you've done. We commit ourselves to you with praise in your blessed name. Amen.